Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you this morning. Before we get to our message this morning, we have a special treat for us this morning. We have up here on the front row our third and fourth grade Sunday school class. And Miss Laurie Smart is a teacher, which you all know Miss Laurie, and her sweet spirit and her love for the church and her love for these kids in particular. But one of the things I don't know if you know about her, she has got an amazing ability to help people learn the Word of God. And so these third and fourth graders have memorized an entire chapter of the Bible, and they're going to come right now and share that with you. So boys and girls, coming up with Miss Laurie and... Encourage us with the Word of God. Well, good job, boys and girls. Uh, That'll preach, right? God's Word is powerful. 
And think of the impact that will make on these boys and girls' lives that they have hidden God's word in their heart like that and to see what God will do with those seeds of his word that have been sown. And so, so Laurie, thank you for doing this with the kids. Thanks for instilling them a love for the word of God and for teaching it faithfully to them. That, that blessed us. Now, church family, that's a challenge for me and a challenge for all of us to step up our game on scripture memory, right? <clears throat> they just memorized a whole chapter. Surely you and I can memorize one verse by next Sunday, right? I hope that encourages you to hear the word of God proclaimed by the mouths of these these little ones. Well, I'm excited to get back into our journey through the gospel of John this morning. We're coming to John chapter 5. So turn to John 5 or scroll in your Bible app and find that. And while you're getting there, realize we're starting a new section of the gospel of John. This is something that some people tag the festival cycle because everything you're going to see for about the next five or six chapters, the setting will be different feasts, different festivals of the Jewish people. But perhaps what's more significant about this section of the gospel of John this is where you're going to see a growing persecution against Jesus coming, a growing opposition to him. Everything has been kind of calm up until this point, but you're going to see a growing opposition to him in the months to come. Up until this point, we've seen just two signs, two miracles that Jesus has done. And as I was preparing, I realized I didn't preach either one of those. Drew preached on, on the sign of changing water to wine, and then a few weeks ago, CJ preached on the healing of the official sign. Well, we come to the third sign, the sign that's to point to something else today. And that's going to be the healing of a man by the pool. And so as we get to that, it perhaps is a familiar story for you. All these people are laying by this pool in hopes of getting in the water when the water stirs so that they might be healed. And so it's a story of a man who had no hope. It's a story of Jesus finding this man who has no hope and healing him. And it's a story of Jesus having mercy, the story of of the Jews opposing Jesus. But I think there's something bigger happening here than what we just see typically at a quick glance of reading through this particular account of the healing. What is Jesus really up to when on the Sabbath he goes to a place, which is a pool surrounded by invalids, finds just one, not a multi, but finds just one, and heals that one very publicly in the sight of the Jewish leaders? What is Jesus up to here? As we get to John chapter 5, I want you to listen for two things as we go through the text this morning. First of all, how are the people blind to who Jesus is? Because as you look at this text, you don't see people who really get who Jesus is. What is it that blinds them? What is it that keeps them from understanding who Jesus is and what he's come to do? But then as we read as well, I want you to ask yourself the question, is the healing of the man the main focus? Or is there something bigger happening here in addition to the healing of the man? So how are the people blind? What is it that blinds them to who Jesus is? And then what is really the main focus? What is the the big picture of this particular passage. So as we come to John chapter 5, could I ask you please to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out the ESV translation. will be in John chapter 5, the first 18 verses this morning, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he, Jesus, said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, took up his bed, and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. 
Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the gospel of John that we've been journeying through. And God, I pray this day that your word would come alive to us. God, we can't make that happen. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would come and would fill our hearts and open our eyes to understand the truth of the word of God and how it changes our life. Father, we want to see you glorified and magnified in this place. And we ask that you would move by sending your spirit to open our eyes, to illumine us to the truth of the word of God this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, there's one main idea that I want us to see in this passage. We'll look at the setting of it in just a minute. But one main idea, and that's this. Jesus heals on the Sabbath to show that he is God and to prepare his way to the cross. Jesus heals on the Sabbath to show that he is God and to prepare his way to the cross. You're going to see Jesus does care about a person in need. I think that's where our minds typically go in this text. And that's true, and we're going to see that. But I think there's something bigger here than one guy's story. The story of what God is up to, God's redemptive story and what God is doing. Showing that he is God and preparing the way for the cross. So let's look at the setting. Let's see what's going on here. First, back to verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What is this after this? Well, this is go back to two weeks ago when CJ preached on the healing of the official son. So sometime after this. Well, we don't know how long that is because that, that word there in the Greek is indefinite in period of time. It could have been days, it could have been weeks, it could have been months. We, we really don't know how long the period of time was. So sometime, though, in, after Jesus healed the official son, this happens. This is happening around the time of a feast. We're not told which one. People try to speculate on that, but it really doesn't help us because that's not the focus. It doesn't matter what feast is going on in time. What matters is what Jesus does, what he says, and particularly what day of the week he does all this on. Jesus is going to the feast, but where this comes to our story today is he goes a particular way to the feast. He doesn't go to the palaces. He doesn't go to where the rich are. He doesn't go to the cool place where everyone's hanging out. Where does Jesus go? Look at verses 2 and 3. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So where does Jesus go before he gets to the feast he's going to celebrate? He goes to a place in the northeast corner of Jerusalem. There's a pool there. In fact, archaeologists have found there's two large pools there. And the name Bethesda of these pools means place of mercy or house of mercy. It's a place that people who are looking for physical mercy, who have all sorts of physical afflictions, are going to to show up there. Now, why are all these people there? Well, is any one of your Bibles missing verse 4? Yeah, mine doesn't have a verse 4. If yours is missing a verse 4, that's good. There is no verse 4 there. There should not be. In the older translations, there is a verse 4. And in verse 4, in the old translations, it actually says that the reason the people were there was because an angel would come, stir the waters periodically, and the first person to get in the waters would get healed. Well, that's missing from our translations for a good reason because, well, John did not write that. If you go back and look, the earliest manuscripts we have that go back to right to after the time when John wrote this do not have that. That particular verse was added by a scribe sometime later. And so modern translations have taken out because John didn't write it. Furthermore, just if you're curious about it, there's wording in there that's totally different than John's style. Not only his style, but in fact, in verse 4, there's three words that appear nowhere else in the New Testament. They were later words, and so we know with pretty good confidence verse 4 is not part 
of the scripture. So if yours leaves it out, good job to your translators on that one. But we don't need verse 4 there to understand why these invalids were laying around this pool. Go down to verse 7. Verse 7 explains it. John's already told us when he quotes the man. In verse 7, the sick man answered him, Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. What are these people hoping for? There was some type of mist, some type of superstition that God would send an angel periodically, and if you could be the first one and beat everyone else in the pool, you would get healed. And so all these people were hanging on to that hope, and they're hanging around this pool. So as such, it's not the place that the proper Jewish religious people would go to. It's not the place they would hang out before they would go to a feast. One, it would make them ceremonially unclean, but two, it's just a place that made them uncomfortable. It's a bunch of needy people all hoping to get in to this pool. But what's significant for us is Jesus chooses to go there. Jesus intentionally goes to this place that other people avoid. And what does he do when he's there? Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Well, notice here, Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus finds a man, and he speaks to him. He already knows what's going on. Verse 6 tells us he already knew that he had been there a long time. Jesus is God. He knows everything. But he finds this man, this man who's been an invalid, probably lame for 38 years. But he doesn't find the man who's got faith. He finds a man who has really no hope. The man has no community. If you look back in verse 7, he says, I have no one to help me get in the water. It's a man who's lonely, but a man who doesn't have a clue who Jesus is. It's a man who is, in fact, so blinded by his superstition, by his hope that some angel would stir the water, that he can't even see God, the Son, standing right in front of him when he appears. But before he throws stones at him, this guy is not very different than a lot today. His theology of God, his view of God, was God worked on a first-come, first-served basis. Whoever gets in the water first is the one God would help. And friends, that's not very different than a really popular theology today that God helps those who help themselves. It's pretty similar. It's just under new, new packaging, but the same idea that floated around then still happens today. And so Jesus speaks to this man who really has no faith here, and he asks him in verse 6 a question of faith, a question of desire. Do you want to be healed? Now, I would expect in verse 7 the answer to be like, yes, or please, can you help me, or how do I get healed? But the guy doesn't give him an answer like that. In fact, the guy doesn't even tell him he wants to be healed. The guy gives him excuses. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. Again, the guy is so blinded by his superstition here that when Jesus is offering him healing, he doesn't even know to ask for it because he doesn't know who Jesus is. Instead, he gives an excuse of, well, I, I can't get healed. I can't get into the pool here in this. And so his view of God is so wrong. His hope and superstition is so strong. He misses the fact that Jesus, God the Son, is standing right in front of him because he's, Jesus is not operating according to his paradigms of how he thinks God works. But notice Jesus doesn't cast him aside. Jesus doesn't give him a theological lecture about who God really is and how God operates and that God doesn't operate on a God helps those who help themselves mentality. He doesn't give correcting that. Look at what Jesus does there in the very next verse, in verse 8. Jesus just says to him, in spite of the guy's total lack of faith or even desire to be healed, Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And Jesus offers him healing in this. And the man does that. The man gets up. He is immediately healed and he begins to walk. You see the power of Jesus working in this. But notice, his physical healing does not lead to any spiritual change. He has not only seen a miracle, he's experiencing a miracle. A guy who's been an invalid lame for 38 years has now been made well, but it doesn't have any evidence of his sins being forgiven or any change in his life. There's a lot of parallels here to Luke chapter 5. 
That's the story, if you're familiar with it, to when the friends have a paralyzed friend and they lower him through the roof of the house to get him to Jesus. And there Jesus tells him something very similar. Rise, pick up your mat. There he says, go home instead of walk. But it's a very similar wording, a very similar type healing. But in that account in Luke 5, Jesus tells the man specifically, your sins are forgiven. You never see that happen here. You never see any indication of the man being forgiven here on this. And his life doesn't seem to change a whole lot once he's encountered Jesus. Look at verses 10 through 13 here, what happens. He's just been healed. Now, if you've been paralyzed or lame for 38 years and someone has healed you, would you want to know who that person was? Would you at least have a desire to figure out who he was and say, thank you? Well, look at what happens here. Again, the guy who's been, par- who's been lame for 38 years is now healed. So verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So when he's accused of breaking the Sabbath, what's the first thing he does? He blames the guy who's healed him from his affliction for 38 years. He passes the blame right away on this. He doesn't even know who it was. There's no evidence he's made any attempt to figure out who this one is who changed his life. He's basically accepted the gift without trying to figure out who the giver of the gift was. But Jesus still seeks him out. Look at what happens in verse 14. Jesus doesn't leave him where he is. Though the man's not seeking Jesus, Jesus takes initiative once again to him in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. Then nothing worse may happen to you. And don't miss this, friends. The man was in the temple. He was never allowed in the temple for 38 years because he was considered unclean because of whatever situation he found himself in. And for the first time in 38 years, he is now able to go to the temple with the other Jews to worship. Jesus finds him there, but Jesus tells him something. He says, stop sinning, basically. The tense of the word here where he says, sin no more, is a tense in Greek that would indicate the man was still at this point continuing in his sin. We don't know what that sin was. It doesn't even help us to speculate of what that might be. But there was something in the guy's heart where Jesus doesn't say, stop that sin you did 10 years ago. He tells him, stop this, basically, stop the sin you're sinning right now. Stop the sin that you're continuing on in your life. And Jesus gives him a sober warning here. If you do not, look at verse 14 here. See you are well. Send no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Friends, what is worse than 38 years of affliction with no community and no hope? Eternity apart from God is worse than that. This man who had been through what a lot of would describe as hell on earth, that paled in comparison to what he would face if he did not repent of the sins in his life. Well, this is where I wish the story took a different angle. This is where I wish the next verse would read, So the man repented and believed and followed Jesus. He and his whole household followed Christ and many cats saved. That's what I wish the story went like. But that's not what happens. Jesus just warns him basically to repent. So what does he do in verse 15? Does he repent? No. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. The first thing he does after being called to repent is he goes and betrays Jesus to the authorities here. We don't know what happens later in his life. Perhaps he comes to the Lord. We don't know. All we know at this point is this man leaves physically well, but spiritually dead. But God is not in heaven wringing his hands. His plans are not all being thwarted here. God is up to something here. Yes, God cares for the man. That's why Jesus called him to stop sinning. But God has got something else going on here. And that's what I want us to see in the rest of this text, that Jesus is healing on the Sabbath to show us that he is God, but also to prepare his way to the cross. Now, Perhaps one of the most significant phrases of, this, of this, this chapter here, this section, is one we gloss over very quickly, and that's back in verse 9. <clears throat> in verse 9 it says, And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. And we kind of stop there, but this next phrase should make us gasp. 
Now that day was a Sabbath. Friends, so the Jews are listening when they heard that phrase, that day was Sabbath. It'd be like an explosion happening outside and we all turn to see what it is. This is significant. A Jew would gasp, would be amazed at this. Why? Because the Sabbath was the holy day, the day that was set apart for the people to rest, a day of worship, a day of not working. The reality is Jesus did not do anything that violated the Sabbath commands, and the man did not do anything that violated the Sabbath commands. The problem here is the Jewish religious leaders over the years had added to what the Scripture says, and it's always dangerous to add more to what Scripture says. In fact, they developed beyond what Scripture said 39 categories of work that they forbid people from doing on the Sabbath for all these extra rules and regulations they had put in place of what could and could not be done on the Sabbath day. And so they're mad at the man. They're not rejoicing at the fact that this man who's been an invalid for 38 years is healed. They get angry at him because he's breaking their traditions of man. He's breaking their rules, all the extra biblical stuff they added. So they blame him. What does he do? He blames Jesus. So who do they get mad at, mad at now? They get mad at Jesus. Look at verses 15 and 16. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Notice that word, they were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Friends, this rejoice, there was no rejoicing. There was no thankfulness that God had healed the man. All they couldn't do, the Jewish leaders, was they could not get past the fact that their traditions had been broken. They were blinded by the stuff they were clinging to, their traditions, their rules, their laws. And they were so blinded by that tradition they were clinging to, they could not see the miracle of what Jesus was doing. And so Jesus is going to show them that he is God. These Jewish leaders blinded by their regulations, this man blinded by his superstition, Jesus is going to show to them and to us that he is God. And how does he show that he's God here? Two ways. He shows them he's God by his actions and by his words. We see it both in his actions and his words. The actions we've already read about, that's the healing of the man who's been crippled for 38 years. But it's not just, but that healing itself is significant. Back in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 35, there was a prophecy related to the coming of the Messiah. In Isaiah 35, I think it'll be up on the screen, verses 5 and 6. This is what the day will be like when the Messiah comes. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in wilderness and streams in the desert. There's a promise that in the Messianic age that one of the things the Messiah would do would make the lame leap for joy. And so it's striking that one of the very first public miracles Jesus does in front of all the people, including the Jews who are awaiting the Messiah, is he makes a lame man be able to walk. He is showing them in his actions that in fulfilling that prophecy that he himself is God. But it's not just his actions. He shows it in his words as well. Verse 17. Look how Jesus responds to their persecution of him. But Jesus answered them. This is back in John 5, 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now again, to the Jews, they would be aghast if they heard this. The Jewish people at the time addressed God as our father. They didn't dare address him as mine. They couldn't get close to any type of familiarity with God in that type of like common speak. Jesus says God is my father. He describes his relationship to the father in the closest way possible. And what does he say about what his father is doing? He says, my father is working. The big term we use for this is God's providence, God's care of his creation. Friends, if God stops working... If God takes his hand off this universe, this universe will collapse and fall apart. If God takes his hand off you and I, our heart will quit beating, our lives will stop living. We are dependent upon God. In his providence, he sustains us and he sustains his creation. His father is still working until then, not only in his providential care of all things, but also in redemption. We see God constantly moving to draw people to himself. He is in the constant business of his providential rule and of his redemption. And Jesus says, my father is working until now. And guess what? I also 
am working. Jesus is making himself equal with God. He's saying, I am doing the very things that the Father does. This is the very thing that we saw Dr. Ware teaching on last week on the Trinity. And the Jews get what he's saying. Look at how they respond to this. I mean, it's a simple statement. My Father is working and I am working. And what do they do when they hear that one sentence? Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. The Jewish leaders got what Jesus was saying. The simple statement of my father is working and I am working. He was claiming equality with God. He was claiming himself to be God because, well, he is. And so Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He heals this invalid man first to show that he's God, but also he does it to prepare the way for the cross. Remember, the way he went that day was not the way people would normally go to the temple. It wasn't the way the, the, the Jewish faithful would go that way. Why did Jesus go there? Why did Jesus pick out one cripple? He didn't pick out the whole multitude. There's, there's multitude there. He only healed one that we know of. Why did he pick one? And why did he do it on the Sabbath? If Jesus wanted to avoid controversy, he could have gone and found the one guy, waited until Monday or waited until Sunday to, on the next day after the Sabbath to, to, um, to heal him. He could have gone and had someone take him to a private house and heal him. Why did Jesus pick the Sabbath day? Why did he go on the Sabbath day in a crowded place and heal a man in the sight of the Jewish leaders? What was he up to in doing this? He could have done it any other way. Why did he do it? Well, obviously he cared about the person. He was trying to teach us that he is God, but I believe there's one other thing going on here. And Go back to verse 18 one more time. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Friends, Jesus brings to the surface what has to happen. The Jews are ready to kill him now. Until this point, they're pretty upset with him about the Sabbath thing. But when he starts claiming equality with God, this is blasphemous to them. And the penalty for blasphemy was death. What is Jesus doing here? He's basically preparing the way for the persecution to come against him that will lead to the cross. Here's where it really starts. And for the next 18 months of his life in ministry, the Jewish leaders will be plotting and scheming and working to kill Jesus. Now, what's significant about all this, and this is what I want us to end on today, is to realize that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus was not some plan B in God's plan. I think too often we see God as making this perfect world and this kind of loving grandfatherly figure, and he looks up and the people sitting kind of rings his hand like, oh no, what went wrong? How do I fix this? Oh my goodness, what's the best thing I come up with? That's not what all is going on here. The plan for the cross was a plan before the foundation of the world. It's not some plan B that God has. It's God's plan. Acts 2.23 tells us that, that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So the people, the Jewish leaders, will crucify and kill him by the hands of lost men, but they didn't do it of their own initiative. They didn't do it of their own accord. This was God's plan, his definite plan, the foreknowledge of God. Before God even made the world, the, cross, the plan for the cross was already in place. This particular setting we're looking at today with the healing of man was just something that Jesus used and his sovereign wisdom and sovereign power to set things in motion that would certainly lead to the cross. Friends, he heals on the Sabbath. He claims to be God because he's preparing the way for what has to happen, and that is the Jews to eventually, the Jewish leaders to eventually kill him. And friends, that should leave us in awe and wonder that God is big enough to at one time, in one moment, in one situation, to be able to heal a man he cares about, to have an opportunity to teach all those around who are blinded by their traditions, blinded by their superstitions, to teach them all that he is God. And in that very same circumstance, to be setting the, the ball rolling, to be setting things in motion to guarantee that the cross would happen because it was his plan before the foundation of the world. Friends, we serve a God that big who can do all that super easy, all in one moment and in one 
situation. Jesus heals on the Sabbath to show that he is God and to prepare his way to the cross. So what do we do with this in our own lives? You know, there's, there's lots of angles we could take with this text. In fact, even preparing this week, there's so many different emphases we could take on this particular text and different ways we could look at this. But there's several things that I think we can take away from this. One is that apart from the grace of God, we could all be like that man. Apart from the grace of God, we could all be the one who really cares nothing about who Jesus is. Not seeking the Lord, living in sin, totally blinded to who he is, and blinded because we have our own ideas of how God is going to work. The man by the pool had, had made up in his mind that the way God helped people is he sent an angel, and the first one who could get in is the one who got healed. That's the only way God would help people. God helps those who help themselves. And he was bl- so blinded by that superstition, so blinded by his paradigm of how God operates, that when Jesus, God the Son, is standing in front of him, he can't even recognize him for who he is because he's so made up in his mind how God works. Friends, I wonder how often in our own lives... We have made up in our mind, God has to do this, God can't do that. A loving God surely wouldn't, and you fill in the blank. And either we or the people we're close to have created our own paradigms of how God works and can be like that man. Secondly, apart from the grace of God, we could easily be like these Jewish leaders who refuse to rejoice when they see God moving because God's not working in the way they wanted him to work. Because he wasn't doing the type things they expected. He wasn't doing it for the people that they would expect. They could not see him for who he was because they had added to the scriptures their own traditions. Again, apart from the grace of God, how easy it is for us to create our own rules and regulations and our paradigms of what God requires and how we can cling to those and blind us to who God is. Or perhaps like ever in the story, apart from the grace of God, we can lose sight of Jesus' power. We can miss the fact of what he's doing because of something, whether it's a sin that entangles us, whether it's a tradition of man, whether there's some expectation we have of what God does. I don't know what it is for you, but I do know this. Regardless of where we are, this text in John 5 calls us to see Jesus for who he is, that he is God. It also is a text that calls us to remember that the cross is not an accident, that 18 months before Jesus would go to the cross, and what we celebrated on Good Friday a few weeks ago, things are already in motion in God's sovereign plans to be preparing the way for the cross because the cross was a necessity. Friends, the cross is the place to where God's wrath and God's mercy meet. The cross is a place that shows us the totality of who God is and his character and his nature. And the cross is what we celebrate because, and isn't that an ironic thing that as Christians we celebrate an instrument of torture and death? But if it was not for that, friends, we would not know who God was. If it was not for that, we would not have forgiveness for our own sins. And so with that in view, we come to a time to celebrate that and the Lord's Supper in communion as we close the service day. Communion is a time for us to remember the sacrifice of Christ. It's a time for us to remember that Jesus is God. As he said here, my Father is working until now, and I am working. We're celebrating the one who came to die to take the punishment you and I deserve for our sins. There's nothing we could do to get to God. There's nothing we could do to get right with God. Every single one of us is separated from God because every single one of us are sinners. It doesn't matter what sin we've committed. It doesn't matter how great or how small. The reality is everyone on the planet, the best person you know, is alienated from God because they have sin in their heart and in their life. Everyone in this story today we saw was a sinner. The man was a sinner. The Jewish leaders were sinners. All the other invalids by the pools were sinners. Everyone watching were sinners. Everyone in the world has sinned and offended God. We have no hope in and of ourselves to be reconciled to God. That is why Jesus came. That is why what happens here in John 5 will culminate as we go through John and gets to the place to where Jesus himself is crucified, takes the wrath that you and I deserve for our sins. He takes the punishment that we could never take, and he bears it as a perfect sacrifice so that we who believe in him might be forgiven.
As we come to the Lord's table, as we come to take the juice and the bread, we're reminded of his sacrifice. That's the whole point of doing this. It's for us to pause from the business of our lives and take the bread and remember that the bread represents his body. There's nothing magical about this, but it makes us reflect and reminds us of the fact that Jesus' body was broken on the cross that we might have our sins forgiven. The juice reminds us that his blood was poured out because Scripture is very clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this causes us to stop and reflect on the great sacrifice that was made so that you and I might be free. So we might be able, by God's grace, to do what he told the man in the story here, to go and sin no more. We can only do that because of his grace that was purchased on the cross. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 11 because it's instruction for us of why we do what we do and how we do it. Paul writes to the people in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that, Jesus, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So friends, what we're celebrating here is both a reflection of what Jesus has done to purchase our salvation, but it's also forward-looking. It's a reminder to us that Jesus is coming back one day. He's coming back as a reigning, ruling king, and we're thinking about that as well. But there's some sober warnings here that Paul's told the people in Corinth and us as well. It says in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So friends, what we're about to do is a celebration for those who have followed Christ, those who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you never trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you do not know for sure that you are a child of God, that your sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross, my encouragement is just stay where you're seated. There's no shame in that, no embarrassment in that, but stay where you're seated. This is for those who have followed Christ. We'll be glad to talk to you after the service. Myself, any of our elders, any of our teachers, anyone in the room who knows Jesus will be glad to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. But if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, we invite you to come to remember what Jesus did, to remember the sacrifice he paid so that your sins might be forgiven, to realize and remember that his body was broken on the cross so that you and I might have forgiveness of, his, of sins, that his blood was shed, that we might have forgiveness of our sins and new life in him. Let me pray for us before we invite our praise team to come receive the elements, and then everyone else will be instructed to come as well. Father, I thank you in your kindness to us. You looked upon those of us who were helpless. I think of the story we read today in John 5 of this man who was physically and spiritually helpless. And yet in your kindness to him, you sought him out and you healed him. You called him to repent and believe. And Father, we are in so many ways like that man. And we are helpless. There is nothing in us that would cause us to want to follow you apart from your grace drawing us. And so this morning as we celebrate communion, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would let us marvel at your grace. Father, we don't come to this thinking how great we are and how wonderful it is that you have us as your children. God, we come to you realizing we are broken, we are needy, we are sinners saved by the grace of Christ. And so this day I pray that you would fill my heart and the hearts of these precious brothers and sisters here in Gateway with remembrance of the gospel, with joy in the gospel. And I pray that as we observe the Lord's Supper, as we see the bread, drink the cup, and remember the body and blood of Christ, Lord, I pray you would turn our hearts to you. And Lord, thank you seems so inadequate for all you've done for us. Lord, we want to say thank you. We want to worship you as we remember this. We ask that you move in our hearts as we remember the gospel and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin, our praise team is going to come receive the elements. There's a gluten-free option here for those with dietary needs. And after the praise team comes, our, our deacons will direct you in 
receiving the elements.